In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. I want to invite up Trevor to uh, unpack this passage now. Yeah, this is a, an incredible uh, passage at the beginning of the uh, letter that Paul wrote. We call it the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, it's probably not written to uh, the church in Ephesus. Uh, it was named Ephesians because it became associated with them, obviously. But one of the reasons why we, we doubt that it was written by Paul to the church in Ephesus is because it's pretty clear he didn't know uh, these people personally. Uh, just after the passage that uh, um, Albert just read, um, in verse 15 of Ephesians 1, Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints. So the very first readers of this letter uh, were probably uh, a church that uh, Paul had only heard about, which raises a, a question, or it places this letter in a setting. This is Paul uh, trying to connect with Christians who he doesn't know. How do people connect? And how do people cohere? How do people stay together once they're connected? I've certainly noticed, I'm sure you have too, that this world, this season that we're in is a divided season. Um, I think about how politics has divided us. Uh, I'm talking about our culture, not necessarily our church, but it wouldn't be hard, I don't think, in any group of people uh, in 2021 to divide over politics. I think about how the pandemic has divided us. We just had people in our home last night and it was like threading a needle in that group. It just felt like a tinderbox that could be lit with conflict as folks made comments uh, on various sides and perspectives around the pandemic. So that's been a challenging uh, experience for all us, uh, trying to, how do we stay connected? How do we cohere and stay together? So politics, pandemic, and, and posts, <laughs> social media, the internet. It just seems like if you want to divide, you, all you need to do is go to your computer and pretty quickly you can be divided. And there's been lots of comment and I'm, um, you know, stirred by or like convinced by some of it about why is it that the world is so easily divided these days? What's going on with sort of the social fabric generally? 
But I think for us this morning, it's more interesting to ask, in a world that is so evidently capable of dividing, how do people connect and cohere? How does Paul connect with this church that he's never met, that he's only heard about? And I think we have some of the answer in these first verses. We're just coming to the end of the kind of opening blessing, the praise of God that Paul starts this letter with. In Greek, it's one sentence. Uh, Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3 and going down to verse 14, is one sentence. And Paul is just, uh, I, one commentator that I read this week has just said, this is a cascade of thought. It just keeps rolling. It's like the waves on the shore. Uh, it just keeps coming with this enthusiastic blessing of God, praise of God. God blesses us by giving us his grace and his goodness and his kindness and his love. And we bless God by praising him. We don't have anything to give him. We can't bless God as though he needs anything from us. But when we talk about bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name, we're talking about praising God. And that's how Paul connects with these people that he's never met. And he connects very specifically by placing Christ at the center. One thing with all the language and all the theology, and, and this is kind of like a poetic and exuberant praise of God in this very long opening praise and, and sentence. He keeps saying, in Christ, in him, through him. It's just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We connect as a church at Trinity Grace, and we connect with the church globally because of Christ. Our relationship to him individually is important, but it's also important and very important to Paul in his letter to the Ephesian church that all who are in Christ are connected with each other. This is our great point of identity, and it's what holds us together as well. And Paul has, says, has said many things already about what it means to be connected, to be held together because of our relationship in Christ when we have our faith and trust in him. And in verse 11, he gets into this idea of inheritance. I've called this message God's treasured possession. This is a decision that translators have to make when they move from Greek into English with this sentence. Is it that we have an inheritance from God, which is a true statement? We do receive an inheritance when we trust in Christ for salvation. Or is it that God has an inheritance in us, which is also a true statement? And for different reasons, I kind of lean towards the second, which is not really reflected much in the language of the English Standard Version that we're reading from today. And that's, that's okay. I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm saying this is a choice. And I like the emphasis that in Christ, we become God's inheritance. We become God's 
possession, and we'll say more about that later. I like to get to these kinds of um, statements and, and phrases and sentences, often not by first digging into them, but trying to place them in context. And this one, this sentence, these statements about inheritance and being sealed with the Holy Spirit and all these things that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians, it's pretty hard to make a choice about where, where do you start setting a context for this? But I want to go way back. I want to go back to start in a passage that uh, in Genesis 15, which has always captured my imagination. This is Abraham. He's the, the, he's, he's the father of all the Jews, father of all the Israelites. He was Jewish before anyone knew what Jewish was. He's the one who hears this, and what would that have been like? He hears this prompting from God to step out in faith and go to a land that God would show him. And, and Abraham is exceptional because he does it. He leaves his father's house and he starts on this journey. And along with this promise of, of a place, there become, there, there's included the promise of, of a son. That Abraham, this old man who's never had a child, his wife also elderly and, and barren, that they're going to become parents. And in Genesis 15, Abraham's discouraged over this. He's been waiting for this for a while, and, and it's not happening. And he's trying to think, you know, is there some way that this might be able to, you know, that I could manipulate circumstances to, to help God out to fulfill his promises. And, and uh, in Genesis 15, verse 5, God wants to just reassure Abraham about this promise. And it says, he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then God said, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. I like to think that in some way, God, you know, that the Bible says that God brought Abraham outside. And to me, that it just evokes this almost physical experience of God's presence for Abraham. And I, it, I just picture almost like the arm of God around Abraham's shoulder, pulling him back and saying, Abraham, look at those stars. Could you count them? I'm not just going to give you one son. I am going to make from you a people that is as vast as the stars, the children of Abraham. And God does. God gives Abraham and his wife Sarah a son, Isaac the son of promise, the miracle boy. And Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob is a troublemaker. 
God at one point in the story gives Jacob a new name. He calls him Israel, the one who wrestles with God. And Israel, Jacob, has 12 sons. One of them, the favored son, Joseph, is betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery. But at the end of the story, it's revealed that even though Joseph was betrayed, even though his brothers tossed him into the hands of the unjust slave traders who took him down to Egypt, that God had a plan that by Joseph's hand, the children, the sons of Israel would be saved. They'd be preserved. They'd be fed in a time of famine, and they'd be able to live. Those same 12 brothers grow to become almost a nation over generations in Egypt. And finally, a pharaoh comes to power in Egypt who knows nothing of Joseph, doesn't, doesn't favor the children of Israel anymore. In fact, he hates them, he fears them, he enslaves them, he oppresses them, and God raises up another, a little bit like uh, Joseph, who, who was raised to become the, the great right-hand politician of Egypt. Moses is treated like the son of Pharaoh. And a long story that, that you're familiar with, probably, God brings these Israelites, these Egyptian slaves, out of oppression. He saves them first from starvation, by the hand of Joseph, he saves them from oppression by the hand of Moses. And then ultimately, even though they're saved and they're redeemed from Egypt, they disobey. They come right to the edge of the promise that God had given to Abraham all those years before, a promised land, but they don't enter in. And ultimately, God has to save them from themselves, their own sinfulness. Interestingly, he raises up a leader called Joshua. God saves. And by Joshua, they finally fulfill the promise that God had given to Abraham. They enter into the land, and they're established there. And that land is, becomes a kingdom. Like the other nations around them, the Israelites say, we want a king. And ultimately, God gives them David. And to David, he makes the promise, David won from your line will sit on a throne that will never be defeated, will reign over a kingdom that will never end. My point is, all these promises begin with God's promises to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to make you a people. Abraham, I'll see you through famine. I'll rescue you from slavery. I'll preserve you in the wilderness. I'll conquer your enemies. I'll establish you in a land. And David, I'll give you a kingdom that will never end. These are essentially Jewish promises. They're promises to a specific group of people who are related by blood, who can trace their heritage back to Abraham. And so it's not surprising that in the early days of the church, when Jewish 
people began to understand that the promised king that was foretold and to David was actually Jesus, that Jesus was the Christ, that they understood that for themselves, that they understood that finally God is keeping his promise to us, the children of Abraham. We're finally getting the blessing of the Messiah. And with that came the promises of the Holy Spirit, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Peter talked about on the day of Pentecost. He spoke to Jews and he said, this is just what God promised through the prophets that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on us in the last days, that God would give us a new heart. Finally, we can be the people of God that we always were meant to be because Jesus has saved us. Jesus has secured our standing as God's people through his perfect work on our behalf at the cross. It's interesting to me, and you'll find it interesting as well, you know, there, there's all this enthusiasm about Jesus. Of course, church is, is uh, growing, and God is adding to their number. And it seems, though, that people who weren't Jewish were not very much on the minds of many people in the earliest days of the church. They were thinking about Jesus a lot. They were very thankful for all that God had done for them in Christ. But it was kind of their assumption that if God had started his plan generations before with one man, Abraham, and had grown and preserved and blessed one group of people, that that would be the people he would continue to work with, and that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the saving king for the Jews. And they weren't, many of them anyway, thinking much about people who weren't Jewish. A persecution uh, breaks out in the early days of the church in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 11, we read about what happened uh, following that. Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, one of the followers of Christ, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Isn't that interesting? They've understood so much about God's plan. They've caught on to the incredible gift that God has given in Christ, but in their minds, I think this verse reflects the uh, Acts 11 verse 19, that they're assuming this is only for Jewish people. We can only share this good news about Jesus with the people who are God's people, the children of Abraham, the sons of Israel. Those are the ones that God intends to bless. Verse 20 says, But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who coming on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, the Greeks also, the Gentiles, preaching the Lord 
Jesus. It almost sounds like a fluke. It's not a strategy. It's not a plan. There's no missionary society that's founded in Jerusalem saying clearly what we need to do is get this message out to all the nations of the world. It's just that some people, scattered because of the persecution of the church that breaks out in Jerusalem, people start to share this message with Gentiles. And a, this ultimately results in an explosion of the church in the city of Antioch. It stirs up all kinds of questions for the believers in Jerusalem. Can these people be included? And so much of the New Testament and much of the writing of Paul is dealing with this, almost this scandal of including non-Jewish people into the promises of God that are fulfilled in Christ. How does this work? Do they have to follow the laws that Moses gave to us? Do they have to become Jewish in order to benefit from the work of Jesus? And Ephesians chapter 1, and these verses in particular, are one place where we see that Paul's conviction, Paul's belief, is an emphatic no. You don't have to become culturally the same as me, Paul is saying, because he's Jewish through and through. He's a Pharisee to begin with and very devout as a Jew. But he has this ministry to non-Jewish people, and he wants these people to know, these Christians who aren't Jewish, that he's never met, and he wants to connect with them, and he wants to know that, but wants them to know that they're a part of God's plan and purpose. And so he's writing to them this praise of God just over and over again, saying, in Christ, in him, Jesus is all that you need in order to be included. And then he comes to this. In Christ, verse 11 of Ephesians 1, we have obtained an inheritance, or God has obtained us as his inheritance in Christ. Both are true. We've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, and I think Paul here is speaking about the Jews, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, who were the first to hear these promises that God made to David about a saving king and see that promise worked out through the prophets, the ones, the Jews, who hoped first in this idea that one would come to deliver them and save them. We were, who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, and here he's speaking to these, these believers in Jesus who aren't Jewish like himself, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, again, in Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This is a almost a, an exact parallel to the story that we read about Cornelius and Peter in the book of Acts, where Peter is struggling with the idea of going and meeting with, uh, or 
yeah, I think he is. He's struggling with the idea of going and meeting with this uh, man, Cornelius, who isn't Jewish. But when he sees that the Holy Spirit is given as a gift to these who are not Jews, but have placed their faith in Christ, he understands God is doing something by his spirit to build a people that transcends the children of Abraham biologically and includes all the nations of the world, anyone who would hope in Christ. We, he, Peter saw it with his own eyes. The Holy Spirit came on this Gentile family, Cornelius' household, just as it had come on the Jewish people on the day of Pentecost. And Peter says, I now understand that God accepts anyone who would trust in Christ. This is a, a radical idea because it was built up over generations and time that God was working specifically with one group of people. He made specific promises to Abraham, and he protected the children of Israel through Joseph, and he delivered the slaves of Egypt through Moses, who gave them their laws. And he, delivered, he conquered the land through Joshua, that was work that he did for one specific group of people. And now what Paul calls the mystery of God. And when he uses that language in the New Testament, and it's not here directly in, this, uh, in these verses, but he's just referred to it uh, earlier in verse 8 that God has lavished his grace upon us, all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. And what we understand is that when Paul uses that word mystery, he's talking about like a great reveal, something that God has kept almost hidden and veiled over time and generations, and then it's, it's revealed. And what's interesting is we pick up on threads of this mystery, like at the very beginning, and I won't go through a whole lot of them, but right at the very beginning when God calls Abraham, he says, I'm going to make you a great nation and I will bless all the nations of the world through you. And so when you begin to look back on all the promises of God through the history of the Old Testament, and the people of Abraham, it's clear that, that God always had this in mind, that it wasn't just a work that he was gonna do for one specific group of people, but it was for the whole world. And it's revealed clearly in these last days. And it's revealed particularly by the work of the Holy Spirit as people who aren't Jewish trust in Jesus and believe in him they receive the same Holy Spirit gift that God poured out on his people at the day of Pentecost. And Paul says, this is like a seal. He says, you've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You've been marked. God has placed his indelible sign of ownership on you in the person of the Holy Spirit. You belong to him just as much as I belong to him as a Jewish person. We've become his 
treasured possession together in Christ. And I know it's true because you've received the Holy Spirit just as I've received the Holy Spirit. How do you connect as a church? How do you hold together as a church? It's by this central focus on Christ, recognizing that Jesus is what we need. There is no other name given to men by which we must be saved. There is an exclusivity to Christianity. Christianity exists because of one person, and Christians are those who have trusted in Jesus. But by focusing ourselves on the one true Savior that God has given to the world, Jesus Christ, it's not that things narrow down. It's that things explode into this vast, indescribable richness of God's grace and plan. And this story that began with one man, I'm going to make a nation of you, Abraham, and through that nation I'm going to bless the whole world. That experience, which I believe for Abraham was so personal and so seemed so small and so fragile. Abraham standing in the night looking out at the stars and God saying, to him, don't worry, Abraham. My plan is beyond your imagination. I'm going to make a people from you that is as vast as the stars in the sky. You won't be able to count the number of people who belong to the promises that I am giving to you. That, that moment for one man, that one moment of faith is fulfilled ultimately in Christ who's the saving king, not only for the Jews, but for the whole world. And when people trust in him, when we see him for who he is and what he's done, what he's accomplished for us, it doesn't narrow our lives. Our lives explode personally, but also because we're then instantly connected to anyone else who has believed in Christ and been sealed with the Holy Spirit. This is good news for us this morning because I don't think there are uh, many of us, uh, if any in this room, who would be able to biologically trace our uh, heritage to Abraham. Most of us here are Gentiles in New Testament language. We're not Jewish. So it is good news that God's plan from the beginning was to make for himself a people in Christ and that all that has is needed so that we can be given the right to be called daughters and sons of God has been accomplished by Jesus and in him we too are included in all the promises of God all through the Bible in Christ we have so much that's good news for us this morning and it's important for us as well because we have to understand that God's the one who chooses, God's the one who's gathering people in. And he is, his plan is, I think, an ever exploding mystery. Have you ever 
heard the testimony of a person who says, if, I mean, I just have so many reasons not to be a Christian, but let me tell you how God saved me. And they can recount all about the circumstances of their lives, maybe including the religion that they were born into, some of their spiritual beliefs that formed their early understanding in childhood. Maybe others testify, I was running so hard in the direction away from God. I can't, I can't imagine that God saved me. And over and over again, we hear the stories of those who say, I can't explain it, but God must have chosen me because he's worked a miracle in my life so that I saw Christ and his work clearly, and I've trusted in that work. And I know for sure, because the Holy Spirit testifies to my spirit that I can call God my Father. I know for sure I'm included in the people of God. We should be encouraged this morning because we can't look at anybody. There's not a single person that comes to your mind, no one in your family, no one in your neighborhood, no one that you know at work who is beyond the reach of the promises of God in Christ. God works miracles and he chooses to include people in his family through his son, Jesus. So we can go out and just share this news fully confident that anyone who trusts Anyone who holds on to Jesus is included. And that's all that they need to do to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, to become daughters, to become a daughter or a son of God. There's no religion that can stop that from happening. There's no history that can stop that from happening. There's no sense of personal identity that can stop that from happening. There's no addiction that can stop that from happening. When God reveals Jesus to people and pours out his Holy Spirit on them, nothing can stop that. And our responsibility is just, our joy is just to share. God is saving people from all backgrounds and histories and cultures and languages in Christ. Will you trust him? Maybe you're you're listening this morning, either here or online, and, and you're thinking, I'm probably in the category of someone who is not yet a Christian, uh, curious about Jesus, wondering about the claims of Christ. And one of the things that's sometimes difficult, I know because I've had this conversation multiple times over the years for people who are not believers in Jesus, is that it just seems so exclusive. But I hope you can see here this morning that it has to be exclusive because it's about a person. There's nothing arbitrary or capricious or cruel about Jesus being the only way of salvation because Jesus is an individual person. And we trust in an individual and his singular work for us in order to be saved. Even though that might feel restrictive, I just want to repeat something I've already said a couple times. There is nothing restrictive about Christ. It's singular. He's singular. He's one person. And it's by trusting in his work 
But there's nothing restrictive about that because this, this wonder that Paul is praising God for in Ephesians chapter 1 just unfurls, it explodes into view when we have Christ, when we're in him, when we trust him. It was recently observed to me that um, Christianity has a unique feature in history in that it began as a Middle Eastern movement. It spread into what we now call Europe. Then it came to North America. And now uh, the largest number of Christians in the world are in the global south, continents like Africa and South America and Asia. By 2030, some are predicting that the country in the world with the largest number of Christians will be China. 2030. It's only 2022 right now. The Christian message has moved past languages. It's moved past cultures. It's defeated all kinds of barriers because it moves forward according to God's plan and purpose to make for himself a treasured people in Christ. Nothing can stop that from happening. So if you've trusted Christ this morning, hear this again. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen.